Let's take the baby to see Nightmare Before Christmas, she said. It'll be fun, she said. It's a kid movie, she said. I was so excited. An animated Christmas movie. That sounds like my bag. Hi, I'm Brian Butler. Welcome to Haunted Movies and Memories. I've talked about movies that traumatized me as a kid because perhaps I wasn't old enough to appreciate their moving pessimism, hashtag orca, and I've talked about movies that freaked me out as an adult much more than they would have if I watched them sober. But what about all the kiddie movies I saw in my youth that should not have messed me up and yet totally scarred me for several years? Well, grab your shovels, kids. Let's start digging. I was three years old when The Nightmare Before Christmas was released, and I was three years old when I saw it in theaters. This partially explains why one of my earliest memories is running out of a movie theater screaming for my life within the first few seconds of the opening song, This Is Halloween. Just before it starts, the audience is sucked into the void of a pumpkin-shaped hole in a tree. Deep in the blackness, we can make out a scarecrow as Danny Elfman's chilling string arrangement pulls us closer and closer to the creature against our will. A taunting, repetitive, bouncing march of ominous violins that still fills me with a familiar panic when I hear it. I could not believe how scary this was. I had not seen stop motion or anything besides Barney, really, and you have to admit, the grayscale, exaggerated German expressionist design mixed with the unsettling choppiness of Rankin Bass Animagic is pretty fucking creepy. Something was different, something was wrong, I immediately wanted to leave. But running out of a theater isn't something you do, even when you're three years old, I must have thought. But there was no way it could sustain this level of otherworldly horror for 90 minutes. I would wait it out. I could do this. But it just kept getting scarier and scarier. The voices, the melodies, the creatures. Each was freakier than the last. I now considered quietly getting up and walking out, maybe waiting a few minutes and then coming back if things calmed down. This plan was scrapped entirely when yet another freakish character announced himself by what I remembered as jumping out of a haystack. The character was shaped like a spinning top, his head a fat cone topped with a skinny hat that seemed almost as long as his body. His right eye was just a gaping black hole with a small yellowish pupil that bounced around inside like a pinball. His left eye was simply a twisted swirl in his skin like a fleshy cinnamon roll with no pupil at all, as if the eye had been scooped out and the skin around it healed improperly. His eight fingernails were inexplicably coated in bright red nail polish and he donned a large fat black widow spider as a necktie. And perhaps what upsets me most to this day, his nose was simply a thick, abstract gash in his face, revealing nothing but the blackness inside of his head. And this was his happy face. What sort of sick fuck designed this thing? The character's randomly stream-of-consciousness design is not reflected in any of the other cute, almost innocently stereotypical Halloween characters. Mummies, witches, vampires, a gill man. But this outcast from a Basquiat painting was the mayor of Halloween Town, and as he nailed his one line, in this town, don't we love it now, everyone's waiting for the next surprise, he punctuated the end of this lyric by spinning his body around 360 degrees while his cone-shaped head stayed in place, terrorizing me with his huge Cheshire Cat grin and long piano key teeth. That, um, didn't work for me. 
I ran. I think my mom finally caught up with me, and we waited together outside while my dad and brother finished the movie. Afterwards, they told me how awesome it was. I had to go back and see it. Stop being a chicken. I was missing out. We went back, and being prepared this time, I may have actually made it a couple minutes in, to the part where Sally detaches her arm to escape from Dr. Finkelstein, and he later has to reattach it for her. Or maybe it was shortly after that, when the dreaded mayor reveals his unhappy face, trying to get a hold of Jack Skellington, and falls, his strange body rolling down a long staircase and into a twisted gate. Whether it was the girl's dismemberment, or the freaky mayor doing more weird stuff, I didn't effing like it, and I had to get out again. I don't think I ran out as frantically, but I was still freaked out, so this time my grandma waited outside with me, smoking cigarettes, giving my mom a chance to finally see the movie. I believe this was the Nickelodeon Theater in Chula Vista that opened earlier that year in May 1993. It was later bought by Ultrastar and is now an AMC, closed for the pandemic. Two large sculptures of happy and sad, harlequin-style theater masks adorned the marquee above the escalator that I waited by with my mom and grandma those two times in 1993, and a large skeletal tower atop an elevator could be seen in the adjoining Chula Vista Center. These distinct images and the vintage sci-fi toy store next door to the theater are forever linked with my memory of these visits and hiding from this nightmare film in my panicked state. I would not let myself finish The Nightmare Before Christmas until about six years later, when I finally decided I was ready to watch it on VHS around age nine, long after the trauma of Orca the Killer Whale had toughened me up. But in the six-year interim between running out of Nightmare twice and finally enjoying it on my TV, there were some bad vibes still following me from those 25-foot-tall screenings at age three, and they would not leave me alone. I'm talking I couldn't think straight at times because of those first few moments of This is Halloween that tortured me so much. This is not an exaggeration. I actually have a fairly poor recollection of almost anything from my first decade of life, but for some reason, I still remember quite vividly, a couple years after running out of that theater, sitting at a restaurant in Grossmont Center with my mom and her friends, unable to relax or concentrate, tormented by an image burned into my mind, the semicircle of six trees with doors that represented the popular holidays, and Ed Ivory's chillingly flat enthusiasm as he briefly narrated the film's opening. I couldn't explain why it still bothered me, and I couldn't shake it off for years. After finally watching it all the way through at age nine, I was forced to confront an incorrect memory, similar to the way I misremembered Orca's troubling ending, when I realized that the strong and specific impression of the mayor of Halloween Town jumping out of a haystack that followed me for six years was something that never actually happened in the movie. His line is delivered while standing on a wall. There's no haystack. Somehow, different thoughts and images converged over time to create this falsely remembered scare that would chase me out of the Chula Vista Nickelodeon at age three and follow me throughout the first decade of my life. It could have been worse. At least I didn't stumble upon the deceptively child-oriented cartoon Plague Dogs at that age, a movie whose video cover gives the impression of a feel-good adventure about talking dogs, and then hits you with a real-world graphic violence and cynicism that will forever change your association of safety and happiness with animated kids' movies. I luckily would not experience this deeply saddening movie until around age 25, where I'd watch it at a friend's house and we'd both have fun cringing at the darkly singular contrast of violent, real-world animal cruelty with nostalgic animation until the end, where an ambiguous conclusion leaves just a little to the imagination, letting you piece together what might happen. And we'll say that my friend and I had difficulty drawing any optimistic reading of this anticlimax. Another movie called Watership Down, which was a similarly violent animated dystopian allegory about animals by the same director and based on a book by the same author as Plague Dogs, somehow feels like a truly happy film in comparison. 
They both share an intricate sensitivity and lifelike sadness that is rare for a movie, even more so for an animation, but Plague Dogs is the one that really hampers any potential for happiness whenever it reappears in my brain. Though I often find myself involuntarily thinking of Plague Dogs and heavy with emotion, like all horrors, there are stretches where it leaves me alone and I find relief. But no matter how successful I am at forcing this movie into the part of my mind reserved for heart-stabbing tragedy, it never takes too long to creep back up on me and I again find myself thinking about those dogs. Though I dodged the bullet of seeing Plague Dogs as a kid, I was not able to escape the trajectory of another troubling That's Life movie about dogs my brother picked up at the swap meet. A VHS copy of Where the Red Fern Grows, a strange and simple adaptation of a realistic, melancholy novel by Wilson Rawls many of us had to read in school. My brother read it, and I think that's why he liked the movie. I liked it too. But there were things in it I wasn't used to seeing in movies about boys on a farm and their dogs. I had of course been troubled by the death of Bambi's mom in that Disney animated feature, and could never get over the scene where a pheasant panics about an approaching hunter, attempting to escape him by flying away and is shot dead, the bird's small body spiraling to the ground, landing with a thud. In Bambi, death was explored with an epic, operatic sensitivity, and though there was a similar feeling of melodrama in Where the Red Fern Grows, death in this movie was accompanied by an eerily quiet and calm reaction from its characters. An inevitable, ugly accident affects this peaceful country town, and seeing them have to deal with it, grieve, and move on with such casually helpless acceptance was a moving reality that was captured on film and digested by me at a young age. What happens about halfway through the book and the film is a young boy, Reuben, snatches a hatchet out of another boy, Billy's, hands to intervene after the two boys' dogs begin fighting. In trying to kill Billy's dog, Reuben is tripped by Billy, falls on the axe, and then rolls over onto his back. An effectively minimal trickle of blood forms a black line down the right side of his chin. We see the child dying in a close-up shot, the camera on his left side down by his stomach, looking up at his face, which is sparsely lit amongst complete blackness. On his back, he casts his gaze down to the boys and the audience, only managing to say the words, please, take it out, before his breathing finally stops. This kind of fucked me up, especially watching it through the hazy brownish-blue filter and scratchy tracking on the worn-out VHS tape. In my memory, it looks like a snuff film. At the end of the movie, Billy's dogs are attacked by a mountain lion, and though Billy saves them by killing it, one of the dogs later succumbs to its wounds and the other dies shortly after, presumably having lost the will to live. He buries the dogs and later discovers a red fern, which according to legend can only be planted by an angel, has grown between the dogs' graves by the river. This isn't as dark as Plague Dogs, but it's a novelistic story, and this isn't lost in the film. It's not necessarily awkward as a film, as much as it feels like a literal, somewhat mediocre rendering of the fittingly bland source material, but this faithfulness to the uniquely sensitive reality of the book does give the viewer a rare, realistic, and poignant slice of sadness usually exclusive to novels and executed in this 1974 film with an unsettlingly antique sentimentality. If this description doesn't trigger a challenge to watch the movie and see if its power holds up for adults in 2021, I urge you to look at the poster and see if your blood runs cold. In an overly saccharine painting of a boy running with his two dogs on a bright summer day, a big smile on his face, the promise of overly quaint happiness that's obviously masking something else is enough to fill you with dread. This is not necessarily a great movie, but it's haunted me more than most. Though I don't remember my mom talking about him that much, in the 90s she must have really loved Tim Allen, as many of us did during the peak of his career. I realize this now because looking back, on top of our hastily purchased copy of The Santa Claus on VHS, 
Between 1995 and 1997, I can remember three specific movies she took me to see at the AMC in Mission Valley, and they all starred Tim Allen. The first of these movies was not specific to Tim Allen fans, and I'm sure most everyone has seen it at least once. The second movie we saw was much more dependent on Tim Allen's 90s star power, and I bet many people saw that one as well. But the third Tim Allen movie we attended, if you did happen to see it, like me, you probably don't remember much. That third Tim Allen movie we saw in 1997 was called For Richer or Poorer, and in it, our boy co-starred alongside fellow 90s seat filler Kirstie Alley. Practically nothing from this movie has stayed with me, just that some semblance of a plot was thrown together to give this duo the comic opportunity of trying to blend in amongst an Amish community. Tim Allen trying to chop wood or something, yada yada yada. If you can imagine in the 90s seeing this premise unfold in a two-minute promotional trailer with a few sarcastic Tim Allen one-liners, it's easy to see how the average home improvement fan would have wanted to throw down 450 on a ticket. But if you've actually seen the movie, it's equally understandable as to why it was such a commercial and critical failure, and has mostly been forgotten. I have not rewatched the movie or even thought about it much since that first viewing, but I did remember Tim Allen sitting with an Amish family at a dinner table and being forced to improvise a convincing grace before the meal. He manages to come up with... Good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. I probably only remember this line because it's become an inside joke between my brother and I, and because it was one of the many sleazily funny Tim Allen lines used as a selling point in the trailer. Though this movie wasn't traumatizing in any way, nor did it really stick with me, I was hardly a critic of good and bad at that age. Back then a movie was either fun or boring, and this one definitely wasn't that fun. It must have been the adult-oriented culture clash humor and the comedy of manners elements it constantly relied on that went over my head, but I remember heading for the bathroom several times and I don't think it was from the coke I was drinking. Though I was bored enough to look for distractions and pass the time, the movie itself was not a traumatizing experience. What was traumatizing, however, presented itself to me after leaving my seat to go to the bathroom. After shuffling through the wings of the theater that were so pitch black my only guide was to follow the thin plastic tubes of orange light lining the floor, I emerged finding myself alone in the long, dark corridor of closed doors that sealed in packed crowds watching the best movies December of 1997 had to offer. As I made my way toward the bathroom, I had to walk by a seven-foot-tall, unsettlingly minimalist cardboard poster for an upcoming film called An American Werewolf in Paris. The chilling subtlety of this poster was not lost on me at age seven. Today, 23 years later, in 2021, I'm searching online to find a picture of the seven-foot-tall teaser image to describe it here in detail. For the most part, I see only variations of the two main promotional images for the movie, a dramatic one with the faces of the two lead actors lit in blue, and a blurry close-up of a growling werewolf face with a tiny Eiffel Tower in the background. But after scouring the internet, I have found nothing that remotely resembles what I saw on that wall-sized poster in 1997. What I can piece together from my memory of the giant image was a large black space in the middle, possibly framed by a red velvet curtain with maybe two glowing eyes in the darkness above what I think was some sort of wooden surface, floorboards maybe. I'm remembering it as either part of a stage or maybe a restaurant, something classy, but the only thing that has definitively stayed with me from that image was its faint implication of horror. Emerging from the darkness and resting on the wooden surface were two bony wolf legs, so dark brown that they looked almost burnt black in the dim lighting. I remember a small splash of ruby blood between the two paws, and this addition cemented the image in my mind as an indication of something grotesque I was forced to conjure from my imagination. 
The restrained and classy composition of the rest of the picture contrasted the crude filth and violence suggested by the barely visible wolf legs, and by not showing much, it made my mind go to dark places. This design was too simple to ever forget, and I stared at it, hypnotized, as if staring into Pennywise's deadlights. After the fear subsided, I freed my gaze and went into the bathroom before returning to the theater, trying not to look at the image on my way back. Because I remember this poster for a movie I still have not seen much more vividly than the Tim Allen movie I did see, I'm convinced that something caused me to get up out of my chair and pass by the image several more times that night. It could have just been that walking by it alone that one time was enough to ingrain it in me, but it's not hard to believe that a combination of the bad Tim Allen movie, too much soda, and perhaps the subconscious desire to confront the cardboard poster again, only glancing or looking at it peripherally, was enough to spark several more trips to the bathroom that evening. The slightly more popular Tim Allen movie we had seen at this AMC earlier that year was Jungle to Jungle. Other movies we probably saw here around that time were the original Men in Black and the 90s movie versions of Inspector Gadget and Godzilla that both starred Matthew Broderick. Because Edward Cinema in Rancho San Diego did not yet exist, the 20-minute route to our preferred theater began by taking the 94 West out of La Mesa to the 125 North to the 8 West to Mission Valley, where we'd park in the covered lot below the mall and walk up the long ramp to the theater. The few details about this AMC that stick with me, which are my only confirmation that it was the theater we saw those three Tim Allen movies, were this covered parking lot and its long ramp I remember traversing with my family before and after the screenings, as well as the angular graphics on the theater's colorful carpet, the walls which I think varied from bluish purple to a light yellow, and the escalators that descended into the lower level of movie screens that made it feel like we were in a bunker miles underground. One rainy night on our way home from such an outing, while passing under a bridge about to merge onto the 8 East, my mom's tan Toyota Sienna veered too close to a flooded rain gutter and skidded out of control. After fishtailing for a prolonged moment of chaos, she was finally able to pull safely over to the side of the road. A vivid memory. At the time, it was the closest I had been to being in a car accident. The first, most popular, and most beloved of the three Tim Allen movies we saw during that period at the AMC Mission Valley was Toy Story, two years earlier in 1995. Similar to The Nightmare Before Christmas, it was an animation style that was strange and completely new to me, but at the time, this fully CGI type of movie was still completely new to the world. Though unlike The Nightmare Before Christmas, the opening credits, which featured a boy playing with his cowboy doll accompanied by the song You've Got a Friend in Me, did not send me running from the theater in a frenzied panic. It was a disarming introduction that I appreciate to this day. A movie that would become the most frequently rewound videotape of my childhood after it was released on VHS almost a year later. A feel-good movie. But the first time I saw it, though I was older than the toddler who ran screaming out of the nightmare before Christmas, I was still only five, a preschooler, and seeing one of the main characters, who was a toy that believed he was human and could fly, attempt to escape the house of a toy-torturing teen by flying out the window, fail at this inspiring attempt, and fall to the ground, breaking his arm off, came as a dark and surprising shock to me at the midpoint of the movie. The character, Buzz, is later seen wearing a pink apron seated at a table with dolls, slightly insane from the experience, his severed arm being used by a human girl to pour imaginary tea for her headless dolls. I probably turned to my mom and bombarded her with questions, asking what all this meant, what would happen, confiding in her my worries for this character. And when the other mutilated toys showed up, I was frozen in horror especially at the sight of a giant spider-like creature with crab claws made out of erector set pieces and a one-eyed baby doll head stuck on top of it, the hair sloppily removed with scissors, creaking as he crawls out from the darkness under a bed. 
But the disturbing image from this first theatrical viewing that remains in my mind is the cowboy Woody asking his resentful friends next door for help escaping Sid's house, and the shell-shocked, disenchanted Buzz Lightyear out of frame, showing his apathetic support to Woody by throwing his severed arm up onto the desk. I didn't know what it meant, and I didn't understand why this happy movie had quickly become so dark. It reminded me of The Brave Little Toaster, which also started out as a cheerful cartoon about talking inanimate objects, and descended into a world where these characters are tortured, mutilated, and destroyed by savage humans. But by the end, Buzz was restored, saved the day by miraculously flying somehow, and an exhilarating adventure had taken place. Toy Story stuck the landing, becoming my favorite movie of the decade. To this day, the original Toy Story remains a cherished movie for myself and many others, but it is still by far the darkest of the series, and like The Nightmare Before Christmas, Brave Little Toaster, and the sickeningly existential DreamWorks CGI movie Ants, a reminder of the strong morbidity present in child-oriented movies in the 90s compared to the 30 years that have followed. Boys and girls of every age, wouldn't you like to see something strange? Come with us and you will see. This our town of Halloween. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. 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 In this town we call home. Everyone hail to the pumpkin song. In this town, don't we love it now? Everybody's waiting for the next surprise. Man, I'm getting out of here.